the fans need to understand what kind of guy and what they have in John Gibbons. Well, I certainly can't compete with that in terms of my personal experience. We wanted to win for that city so bad, man. We're giving you all the info, the inside info here. Welcome to episode 13 of Digging In with JPR and Sebia. As always, I am your host, Nick Ashbourne, and today we are joined by the one and only Ricky Romero, who gets into it with us about his relationship with Toronto, what he did after he left the Blue Jays, and uh, it's a re- he's a really interesting interview that we're looking forward to getting to. But before we do that, let's talk a little about John Gibbons, because I feel like this week, certainly the discussion has been a lot about the future of the Blue Jays manager. Um, we've talked to Gibbons. He's a friend of the show. I think that both of us are... Uh, you know, pro-Gibbons in a general sense, but you could understand too why the Blue Jays might feel like they will be moving on in the near future. And I'm just going to quote Jeff Blair's most recent column over at Sportsnet. If the chatter is true, there could very well be John Gibbons' final homestand as Blue Jays manager. Bench coach DeMarlo Hale would replace him on an interim basis. Again, you know, that's not written in stone, but that's something that we could be looking at in the near, near future. So as someone who played under Gibbons, J.P., what do you think the Blue Jays are going to miss about potentially going in a different direction? And what would they be looking for in the next guy? Well, first off, I think that if that was if he was the guy who uh, they let go of, it would just kind of be the, the passage of blame. Uh, unfortunately, that's kind of the way I see it. I'm with Tanya and Sturtz and uh, Lloyd Mosby on the road. And we actually were having that conversation today about John Gibbons and about how great we think he is, how much of a, of a star we think he is as a manager, um, and that it's tough to blame somebody when you haven't had a shortstop who's a perennial all-star on the field. You haven't had a third baseman who's an MVP of the league. Uh, you, your pitchers didn't do what they, they needed to do in the sense of, you know, Stroman got hurt early and, and he struggled. He's been great after. Sanchez has been out. Um, you, you just – you've had Estrada down. I mean, like – it's tough to put it on the manager, but I know that everybody, you know, there has to always, somebody has to take the blame, right? And the front office is definitely not going to take the blame. And I even, you know, Lloyd was talking about that they were saying, you know, hey, the front office has a little bit more time because they have to, you know, have their guys and their system work, but Gibby has to go is what they were saying. And I'm going, you know, why? Why? I mean, the front office, I think, definitely should stay around. Okay, I think that they have they have earned the right with their success before to be able to go out there and have an opportunity, but I don't think Gibbons is a guy that that has to, to take the fall on it. Now, unfortunately, it's not a it's not a oh we feel bad or this or that. It's a business. So if Gibby does get let go of, I think you know they're gonna have to go out there. I think what you realize in, in now and what managers are doing, they're going to young guys, younger guys. Uh, you look at Aaron Boone, you look at Cash, you look at Alex Cora, Tori Lovello. Like these guys are not, you know, spring chickens, but they're younger guys. They're guys that have had success. Um, and I think that they have to have somebody who is who is also well-versed in analytics in the sense of I don't think analytics are the tell-all, but I think there's a huge advantage to understanding it. Um, but it has to be somebody who is – who can continue to communicate. One thing John Gibbons does well is communicate. And that's the biggest part because at the end of the day, a manager, 
I think there's two things a manager has to do. One, he has to be a psychology or a psychologist to get the best out of his players, know how to, you know, if Nick has one way of, of becoming the best player and JP has another, we're going to have to, we have to talk to them differently. And I think that's a huge part of a manager's success. And also you have to manage the bullpen, somebody who understands how to manage a bullpen. And so uh, that's what I would be looking for in a manager. Uh, again, the way it's so analytical now, a lot of decisions are already made before, but I think, you know, again, it's going to have to be that new age style of manager where I think the older, look, you see Sosha talking about stepping down, you know, there's, there's guys, the game is as evolved and you have to evolve with it. And I think that, you know, you look at Kapler, uh, who, who's a, a Philly, he was a front office guy with the, with the Dodgers. Like he, you know, this guy is, is, was over analytical at the beginning of, of, the season and then was able to settle in and went back into being, you know, half analytical or whatever percentage analytical and still being a baseball guy. And so, but again, these guys have to understand that that's the way the game is gone and they have to be a part of it. And if you're not a part of it, then you're not going to be able to manage. So I do think that there is John Schneider, who is a guy that's in double a uh, as a manager and he's managed a couple championships in the, in the lower levels. And he's a guy who was a catcher. So he understands the bullpen and, He's one of the better managers that I've ever been around. I don't know if he is somebody that they'd give a chance to right away, but he's definitely somebody I think would, would be a candidate. One thing that I would add to all of that in terms of qualifications that you're looking for, for me, it seems foolish not to have someone who's bilingual in that spot. You talk about the importance of a manager being able to communicate, being able to communicate with all of your players, whether they're Latin or uh, American players. I mean, obviously you'll have Korean Japanese players. You're going to have difficulties with that. That's just natural. It's probably unfair to expect someone to know all of those languages. But for me, if you're going to hire a new manager, it seems foolish not to have someone who speaks good English and good Spanish, especially with Vladi Guerrero Jr. potentially being the future of this franchise. I want someone who has the ability to speak very fluently to almost all the players. Well, you know who's somebody who, honestly, I just thought of when while you were talking when you said that was... Omar Vizquel, uh, obviously he's he's uh, ma- managing in the minor leagues, and he's uh, when he was playing with us his last year before he retired, he used to tell me he used to say I want to be a manager, and I would sit there during games next to him when I wasn't playing, and then he dude this guy was so good at being able to uh, like predict what was going to happen. He could see things going on before they did, and I know he in the minor leagues right now he's having a ton of success obviously a first ballot hall of famer i mean that's that's undoubtedly uh gonna happen but uh this guy this guy is one of those guys he speaks fluent i think he has the street cred and obviously the accolades but he he one thing he did good is a lot of those guys that were such good players usually aren't good managers because they don't understand why guys struggle but he was really good at, at being able to pick guys up and stuff like that and he had a he had a very good energy about him so that could be a guy i do think i think there's value to being bilingual, I don't think it's the 100% hey, you have to get a guy that's bilingual uh, because, I mean, think about it. There's been a lot of managers that are not bilingual that are very, very good. Uh, and I think by being around baseball in general, you can have conversation with guys uh, that are that – are, by the time a guy gets to the big leagues, most of the time they can speak some kind of English. So – and, I, and and organizations have English class and stuff like that because of that. So they can they can be able to – uh, learn the players can learn but again I just I just don't think it's fair 
to have it fall back on John Gibbons. Um, but again, there's there's somebody that has to kind of wear the brunt of it. And unfortunately, it's not you, you can't just go, oh, well, we'll stay status quo. There's usually a, something that always happens. Okay, on the less analytical side of that, the less trying to predict the transaction, I think a lot of people like Gibby as a personality from fans to, you know, frankly, people in the media. And like you said, players very well liked among the players. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit as a guy who played under him and ask you, what is your favorite John Gibbons story that you think encapsulates the John Gibbons experience? Gosh, um, honestly, I don't have just a story, right? I, I mean, I was with him uh, when I first got drafted. I went to big league camp and he was the manager then. So I was with him around there in big league camp and he was always really good at kind of just being loose and making me feel comfortable, especially as a 21-year-old, you know, in Major League camp with B.J. Ryan and Scott Rowland and Frank Thomas, and I'm going, holy smokes, dude. I was just playing video games with these guys a few years back, and now I'm on the same field as them. So he was good at that. I think, you know, bringing me into the office, that 2013 year when I struggled, um, it was tough because he knew that, that the media had kind of, I became the media's like whipping boy. And, you know, he brought me in a few times and he would, the biggest thing was is him just bringing me in and asking me, Hey, how do you feel, man? Talk to me. Um, and he brought me in and he talked to me one time. And I would say if there's anything that stood out is he said, listen, man, I have so much respect for you. Don't understand. And I was like, Oh, what do you mean? And he goes, listen, with everything that you were going through, Every single time that he didn't put me in the lineup, I went there to his office and I said, hey, why am I not in the office? So his thing was, he's like, listen, you were struggling bad. I mean, and I was, you know, hitting 100 for a month. I mean, I was, that's a tough thing to do. And he's like, you never wanted to, you never wanted to tap out. You never wanted to have a day off. And he goes, and not a lot of people would have ever done that. And he goes, and you have no idea how much that means to me and, and how awesome I think that is. And I think that was one of the things that was special to me is if you have a manager that can notice those little things because when the hamster in your head is just spinning uncontrollably and the guy who really makes the decisions kind of tells you, hey, listen, I know it's tough, but dang, I respect you because there's a lot of, ga- there's a lot of guys in, in baseball, Nick, that if they don't feel 100%, they're not going to – put their feet on that field and it's all about them and that's the way it is and I and I noticed that and you know it's things that you see and it happens every team that they have guys like that but that wasn't me man I didn't want I didn't want to have an excuse or try to fake an injury so I can go to the DL and my numbers would stay there and not get any worse and like different things I and so when he brought me in he told me that it meant a lot but that just just to the kind of guy he is man he could in a tough time like that he was able to uh you know, help me out and have those words, which, which kind of meant a lot. And he brought me into his office quite a bit and he would always try to talk to me and kind of get me out of my own way, which, uh, unfortunately didn't really help all that much because what I was dealing with was much deeper with the anxiety and stuff. Uh, it wasn't just that easy to have somebody say something and it go away. But, um, you know, that was for me, that's, that's what he meant to me. And I always tell him that when I see him, man, is during difficult times, you, you always were positive. So I, I always appreciated that from, you know, John Gibbons. Well, I certainly can't compete with that in terms of my personal experience with John Gibbons, but I will say that from a media perspective, I think that for a lot of people, 
he's just someone who's going to be enjoyed because baseball, you know, for players, but also for media is this kind of grind. It's every day, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes, especially around a team that's not very exciting or maybe not winning, it, it can be a bit of a tedious thing. And he always had these little things that would make it a little bit more fun, whether it was him commenting on the late, latest bobblehead that came out or him talking politics in his meeting at the end. Or, you know, I remember one time where he randomly mimed, you know, throwing a hand grenade at me when I was standing around a batting practice for no reason that I can possibly think of. But it's just like these weird little quirks, him playing country, his country music and trying to convert reporters in his pregame meeting. Like, there's just all these little things that he does, and I'm sure he does at times a million around the team. But he, he's always just been a fun person to be around. So if this is the end for John Gibbons, from any perspective, I think, you know, there's definitely... Somebody said for that being sad, although I understand why they might choose to go in a different direction. Yeah, and you know, for me, I mean, I think the biggest thing is is whatever happens, happens. But I think the fans need to understand what what kind of guy and what they have in John Gibbons. I mean, the guy is uh, is a special dude, and and uh, he was, you know, they were able to make some good runs under him. But like you said, I think that he has he has. I think honestly, Nick is because. You go from being in Toronto, then all of a sudden you're in the minor leagues and you're managing in the minor leagues and, and, you know, San Antonio I think is where he was and they weren't doing well. And all of a sudden you get back to the major leagues uh, and you become the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays again. I think that gave him a new look, man, of just being able to just enjoy the moment. You know, your opportunities are few and far between. And when you get the opportunity, you don't want to have to look past it and go, dang, I didn't get to really take advantage and enjoy my time. It, I think it's because we're, we always pressure to do so well that you kind of almost don't really enjoy it. And when it's done, you're like, damn, that sucked. So I think maybe that's what he went through early uh, as, as a manager. And I think why now he's been able to be kind of the guy that, uh, you know, everybody say, thinks is the happy-go-lucky and fun-loving guy is because he just says, you know what, man, I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. If it, if it all goes away today, I'll tell you what, I'm sure he made some pretty good dang money, so he'll be okay financially. But, you know, it seems to me that that's kind of where he's at, uh, you know, with, him, with himself and his, his, his managerial position. But, dude, everybody knows in this game how, how it works. And so, unfortunately, uh, you know, this might be something for him, but I, I sure hope not. All right. Our guest for today is the one and only... Ricky Romero, Blue Jays All-Star, had an amazing year in 2011, but a number of other good years as well. Um, we're going to be joined by him right now. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, one of the, the best left-handed pitchers to put on the uniform. One of my best friends and a guy who was an All-Star and, you know, arguably has one of the best seasons uh, for a starter in the American League, Eastern American League, uh, with numbers-wise. Uh, Ricky, how you doing? Talk to me about life and, and what you're doing right now and where you're at. Uh, first off, thanks, thanks for having me, man. I was wondering when you were going to have me on. <laughs> uh, but no, nah, man, everything's good. You know, just been hanging out at home. Uh, you know, I got to see you last week doing a little baseball camp with the, as part of the Blue Jays organization, which is pretty fun and awesome to, uh, be able to go out and uh, share your knowledge with the young kids in in, in the western part of uh, Canada. Um, you know, life is good. You know, hanging out with my little guy Sebastian, my wife, um, living in Hermosa Beach. So, can't complain too much, man. 
Ricky, I'm going to, I guess, plug a little bit of an upcoming video we have with Aaron Sanchez. But in this interview that he did with JP with us a couple of weeks ago, he, re- he talked about the importance of his relationship with you and how that has continued to affect his career. So I was wondering if you could speak to where you and Aaron are and the kind of relationship you guys had when you were teammates and how that helped him develop. Well, um, I don't think I was ever teammates with him, but our, our relationship started back when um, we started. I, I was training at this facility out in in uh, Carson, California. It was called API, now called Exos. And in came these two young pups, uh, Kevin Pilar and, and Aaron Sanchez, who I knew nothing about. You know, I just knew that they were in the organization. And uh, and I remember when I went back uh, to the following year to spring training, I found out, you know, obviously Aaron Sanchez was a big-time prospect, and Kevin Pilar was just that up-and-coming guy that had hit his way through the, through the minors. And then... Um, and and we built a relationship from there, and me and Sanchi have remained close through through it all. You know, I think uh, um, I sold my uh, my condo to him in Florida, which is kind of funny. And I remember uh, he used to come and hang out when I was living in it a lot, and you know, always asking for advice and whatnot. And you know, I, I think the, the the best way to put it is me as the the veteran guy, the the guy that was still part of the organization. Um, you know, I just tried teaching him things that I learned throughout my career and, you know, acting right, uh, being a professional on and off the field and, and just being a good positive impact towards, uh, young kids who are, who are out there watching. And, and I was really happy and, and proud when I was able to watch him obviously do his thing, um, a couple years ago. And, and, you know, he was an all-star and all that, you know, and, uh, to this day, you know, we remain really, really good friends, a really close relationship. And, I'm always going to be rooting for him and, 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 you know, and just a great kid all around. Ricky, we were talking about this the other day. You don't really take into consideration uh, that 2011 year. Uh, now that, you know, you, you have a little time to, like, look back at it and stuff like that. How, how unreal was that year for you as a pitcher? Because for me, I know as a catcher, like I told you, I knew that every single day I went out there, I could put whatever pitch down and the other team had no chance Talk about that that year in general, just your mindset and and all the different things. Now that you're able to kind of reflect on it a little bit, honestly, it was it was crazy, man. It was just all around crazy. It was one of those years where um, I finally put everything together. As far as as you know, we started sinking the ball. We started cutting it. At times, we started backdoor uh, uh, backdooring that cutter to to righties and we were just able to do anything we wanted. And like you said, every, every pitch you put down, I, I was so confident that we were going to execute. And it's a funny story. I mean, this year, that year, I remember um, more than a few times, just uh, I remember one specific moment where I looked back at, at the guys watching me throw a bullpen before the game. And I said, Hey, you guys have a night off. And that's the mentality that I took. And that's just how good I felt that year. And I remember I threw a complete game that, that night. And the, one of the guys from the bullpen came in, um, and he's like, I've never seen a starting pitcher ever say that to the bullpen. <laughs> that was pretty crazy. And and I think that's just, you know, it, it, I remember that year or that month where we just got in a row, I think it was August or September, I think. Yeah, it was, uh, it was August when you were player of the, of the month. Yeah, and it was just 
one of those, you just got, you were so locked in and it's kind of hard to explain, but you're just in the zone and, and your arms feeling good. Everything's feeling good. You're clicking, you know, your confidence levels up and you just believe you're the baddest guy on earth, you know, when, 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 when it was going like that. And, and, and looking back at it, you know, it, you hardly ever see guys in the 200 plus innings. And, and that was pretty special to be able to reach that back to back years. And, uh, and like I said, it was just one of those years where you just felt locked in with everything. Ricky, I'm not sure all the Blue Jays fans know that much about your journey since you left the Blue Jays, being with San Francisco for a little bit, and then pitching in the Mexican League, which is what I wanted to ask you about, because I've talked to a lot of players who have gone down there, and it's just such a different atmosphere. It's kind of foreign to a lot of uh, baseball fans who are only familiar with Major League Ball. So I was wondering what that experience was like for you and what you felt the differences were in the game down there? Well, I went to, uh, I, I played in, in TJ for, for a month and a half, Tijuana, Mexico. Um, and uh, the experience itself, it's crazy. I mean, that, that atmosphere in TJ is incredible. You've never seen anything like it. It's a party, the whole nine innings and three hours after the game. It's just a party. There's no... Uh, they don't stop beer sales. It just keeps going. The party keeps going there. And for me, um, you know, obviously uh, my mom was born in TJ, so it was pretty special for me to go back there and, and be able to just play. But um, at the same time, it was a little different. You know, and, uh, stuff is a little different, ran a little differently. And, you know, me uh, just knowing what I know, you know, I just, you know, some stuff, didn't sit well with me, but at the same time, like I said, as far as the team, just a bunch of uh, great group of guys there. Uh, I, I, I love being part of that team, and, and it, was a, it was a really cool um, cool little, uh, I guess, little journey in, in my career just to go down there, and I always wanted to see what it was like, and I got to experience it, and, um, and like I said, it, it is a little different, um, obviously, than here in the States. You know, you're obviously... Um, traveling um you play a seven o'clock game and you have to travel that night to go to the next city which is something you're not used to nobody's used to you know and then you got to play that the following the following day so it's little things like that that kind of that kind of is a little different but like i said as far as the baseball atmosphere it's so um, it's so passionate people love it and and that was really cool to experience that Rick, obviously we were out on the tour, and I think this is something that me and you both faced. Um, you know, we struggle at the end of, of our time with the Blue Jays, and we kind of feel like, you know, we cared so much that we kind of felt like we were letting everybody down. And then eventually you think that, man, no one no one loves me or no one cares for me. And then all of a sudden you go back to Toronto uh, for, I forgot which, the, uh, one of the events, and uh, you're out there in the, in the Jays, the Blue Jays Academy stuff, and you realize how much – you really are still loved. How awesome was that? Because I know for me, it was a really, really humbling feeling to know that there's still a lot of people that felt highly about me and cared about me. Uh, and I know for you, that must have meant a lot. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I mean, we wanted to win for that city so bad, man. And I think at times we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and we created that pressure because we wanted to, we, we talked about at dinner, we would always, always talk about, man, wouldn't it be sweet to just be in the playoffs and, and see this place rocking? I mean, we saw it rocking on a few opening days, and everyone got a taste of what it was like. And other games here and there, you know, Canada Day and, and stuff like that. And 
we that was our that was like one of our biggest goals. You know, I remember me, you, Casey Jansen, Travis Snyder, Brett, Lowe, you, you know, even Brett Lowry, um, in the times that he would join us for dinner, um, and we would all just talk about and sit there and wonder, like, man, we we can't wait to bring baseball back to the city the way it should be. You know, and I think. Um, you know, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and, and, and nobody wanted it as bad as we did, you know, and, and it just, uh, unfortunately it didn't work out. And, but that's one of the biggest things I wish we would have had. And, uh, to be able to go back, um, to Toronto a few months ago and to realize that, you know, that you did make a positive impact. It, it, it was crazy to me because one of the things I hadn't been back for, for anything during season since I last played there, you know, I've been going back, you know, for during Christmas vacation, but I'd never really get close to the, to the city just because of that, that same thought process of man, like who knows if they even like me around here anymore, you know, but going back and, and, and witnessing a baseball game and, and, and just seeing the positive impact that you just left, not only with the fans, but with the, the people that, that, that work there, you know, from the grounds crew, from, the media from the people that work in the in the front office and stuff like that it, it, it that tells you a lot uh, what kind of impact you make as, as a person and that's one of the things i always try to tell guys you know like a sanchi for example kevin Pillar, make sure you're good to everyone and that's something me you and some of the other guys or most of the other guys did you know we were good to you know if you saw an usher walking down the down the elevator or walk, coming down the elevator with you, you were always polite saying hi. And, and I think that that goes a long way. And I think that's why, um, you know, we, we are loved in that city and, and, and it showed me a lot the last time I was there. And, and honestly, I can't wait to, to keep going back. And, and like I said, spreading my knowledge to the young kids and whatnot. Well, all right. That was a very heartfelt answer. And, and obviously you're a, a guy that everything you said right there is true. And if people don't know, you're probably one of the better humans on this planet. But now we, we don't always get sappy here. We, we like to go a little off, <laughs> offbeat. We like to talk baseball. We like to get a little off, offbeat. And one thing that people don't know, obviously people ask about superstitions and stuff like that. But one thing that people don't know is you've had kind of a little bit of a superstition since college, I, I think that you, is what you told me. So yeah. we talk that we, people, we talk about food on here. We do certain things. I'll uh, tell people about uh, your your pregame ritual, which I was able to take part of. And one day, uh, I'm going to throw this out there, Nick. I was so drunk from the night before that Ricky was a little a little <laughs> worried, a little worried about what was going on because I had to go to breakfast with him before every start. But I did go de- deep that night twice, and Ricky did throw a gem, so it was all good. But Ricky, talk about it. I remember that. I mean, we were <laughs> it was in, 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 uh, in New York, right? Yes, and uh, I remember I texted you, and I was like, "Hey, you up? Let's go. We gotta go. We 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 gotta go to breakfast." <laughs> I mean, I think you were seeing double that morning, but uh, yeah, that's a little bit of uh, of the 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 pregame ritual I had going back to college with uh, Justin Turner, um, who's now the third baseman for the Dodgers, and he was my roommate in college. And every morning or every Friday of our junior year, every Friday morning we'd wake up and go get pancakes at McDonald's, which obviously I, I can't remember the last time I had pancakes from there, but um, we'd go there every Friday. And then I remember when we went to the playoffs, when we, uh, they'd make sure, or even on the road, they'd make sure we'd get our, our, uh, our pancakes. 
And I just kind of carried on, and then you came along, and then it was like, hey, dude, I, I like to do this. Uh, go out to breakfast every morning before I start, and I like to go get pancakes. <laughs> you agreed, and I still uh, remember all those times down in Toronto, obviously. You know, we'd always go to, um, forget the name of the place. You remember? Franz Diner. Yeah, I, I, I remember that place. And obviously, I remember back, uh, was it opening day in Cleveland? where we uh, drove like 30 minutes to go find a pancake house. Yeah, you were a huge pancake house guy because they had the best bacon. <laughs> um, and I, I believe at that time, Uber still wasn't that big, so we had to wait for a cab. And we had to, I remember we had to get a, a, cab, a cab's card just to uh, make sure he can come and pick us up after we were done. So I, th- I thought that was pretty funny, you know, where, uh, where uh, we'd always make sure we'd find myself uh, some pancakes in. Whether you were, uh, it was a long night for you or not, you you never missed it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was a team player. <laughs> All right, Ricky, before you go, I uh, I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned that you were away from Toronto for so long since you left and only recently came back. You mentioned Friends Diner, great place to eat. But what about the city uh, do you miss during that time? What are some places that you maybe like to go back to when you're uh, back in town? Oh, man, Jacob's Steakhouse. I mean, as JP, I'm sure, know, I mean, has talked about it before. I mean, there's no better steak, I think, than, than that place. You know, that, that place is, to me, is the best, the best. And we took my father-in-law, um, last time I was there, me and JP did, and he, to this day, he still raves about that steak he had there. So, if you're ever in Toronto, I always recommend um, Jacob's Steakhouse, and I think uh, another place we used to go to a lot was one of our uh, uh, go-to places was Blowfish Sushi. And um, I believe it's still there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that place was legit, you know. And, and we'd always go there and get the crispy uh, tuna uh, rolls or whatever. And um, uh, I remember uh, Casey was big on that. Casey Jansen, Jeff Mathis was big on that. What about Yamato's? What about Yamato's Grill? Yamato's. I mean, how could you ever forget Yamato? <laughs> Saki Bomb Central. We're, I'm giving you. We're giving you all the info, the inside info here. Oh my God, so, was it was it ever Saki Bomb Saki Bomb Central right there? I mean, and it wasn't even really ordered by us. The, I feel like the who the guy running, maybe the owner or the general manager of the place, used to love us going there. So we'd walk in and he'd look. Look at us and be like, okay, I'm bringing Saki Bomb to you guys. And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Yamato's, and I'm going to help you with one more because we would go there every football weekend. You know exactly where that was because, Nick, these guys are huge fantasy football guys. So, Oh, yeah, real sports. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, still to this day the best sports bar I've ever been to. And, uh, you know, we'd always go hang out there. We'd watch, big, we'd watch a few big fights there, too, or so. Uh, any little chance that we got to go over there and, and watch football, watch whatever was the big event that day, and we had time, we'd, we'd definitely go and do it. And um, it was always, like I said, Toronto's so, so, it's so cool because there's so many places um, to go out and eat and, and explore that, you know, that's why I feel like it's unique. And for me, the love, the love for Toronto will always be there. I mean, I, I, I dearly miss it. And uh, like I said, I hope to be back. Um, more often nowadays. Hey, he liked it so much, Nick. He married a Canadian girl from not too far away. He's, he's got good taste. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I married a Canadian just so I can go back. <laughs> 
All right, Ricky, we re- we like the recommendations. I know JP laughs at me, but I always got to ask someone about where they like to eat. We appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for coming on and sharing some of the inside scoop with us. No, for sure. Thank you guys for having me. You're the best, Ricky. I love you. All righty, man. <laughs> That was Ricky Romero, and uh, I think that he went a little bit deeper on the on the sake bomb side that maybe he anticipated. But it's it's good to hear from a guy like that. Hey, true story though, because because uh, I don't I think it was like the GM or the manager there, and we used to go there. And actually, one of the ringleaders uh, was Sean Markham because he was a person who enjoyed himself off the field. So, dude, we used to go there, and this guy would send out sake bombs. And no lie, I mean, imagine, we have a long season, so whenever we kind of let the hair down, it's pretty, you let it down very, very deep. So I think we had so many sake bombs that by the time I got out of Yamato's in Yorkville, there was, if one cab was standing in front of the restaurant, it looked like three. (laughs) And I remember, like, stumbling into the bathroom and, like, I thought it, I I don't even remember what I was doing, but I was like almost like a little kid going from urinal to urinal because I was so drunk. I thought that that was funny. So that's the kind of nights that we would have. But honestly, we were we were really really close. Me and Ricky were like brothers, and we still are like brothers. Um, and with Casey Jansen and Travis Snyder uh, and Brett Laurie and even Cecilicious is what we used to call him, Brett Cecil. But with all those guys, man. We did. We really took we really took it serious on trying to bring a winning team to Toronto and we really, really cared about it. Obviously we didn't succeed, but I think that's why we kinda you know, when we struggled, we struggled so hard because we were so so hard on ourselves. And Ricky was one of those guys. He just he just cared so much. And unfortunately I think you care too much to a fault because you end up trying to please everybody instead of just focusing at the task at hand and i think that that kind of both hurt us i think ricky's a guy who might unfortunately suffer a little bit from the fact that he was very very good but for a short time and i think that in this city and but also in general fans will remember a guy who was around a long time and was okay whereas ricky was great for a short period of time and i feel like he might not get the same love and the same type of remembrance that he deserves from the fans but he he did some pretty cool things when he was in that zone that he sort of described to us especially in that particular season 2011. Dude 2011 was ridiculous and again I remember calling that game and I remember calling those games and I remember going like dude this guy no one's gonna hit him and what people don't realize at that time I think he had like a under a three RA might have been like a two nine I think is what he finished off at with over like 220 plus innings with a ton of strikeouts. Like at, at that time when he had that season, he had just signed the five-year $30 million deal. And I remember thinking, dang, dude, the Blue Jays just got a huge discount because this is like a guy who should be making $100 million. That's how good he was that year. And then, you know, again, he had his struggles. And, uh, uh, you know, I know he still wants to play. And I think he's still giving it a go but you know again at the end of the day what we talked about is when you kind of step away and you're able to kind of really realize what you did and how special it was and I mean he was an all-star dude not many guys can put on a uniform in the big leagues not many guys can put on a uniform and be good uh and nonetheless literally make an all-star team so that that's such a special thing to to have and and to do and to say that you were able to do um so again uh, he, if, if for whatever reason, he, he is not a guy that, that plays again or whatever. He has, he has a lot, a lot of 
things that he can hang the hat on that uh, that are pretty special. And again, one of the better human beings that you'll ever be around. So today for Memory Lane, um, as JP has pointed out to me on Twitter, it was actually his debut. We already covered that. That was a classic. Um, but, you know, you guys need fresh content. So we're going to go with a different play. No, 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 no. <laughs> Come on. Let's just, sulk, let's just sulk in it real quick. Uh, this year, today, eight years ago, uh, just first pitch, Homer, then just downhill ever since maybe oh maybe at the 10 year anniversary it can be revisited you know a big round number but uh today we're gonna move on to what happened the next year which was another big debut wasn't literally this day but it was brett laurie coming up and brett laurie we've talked to a little bit on the podcast hopefully a future guest and he had this amazing it wasn't just it wasn't really a one game debut but this amazing run that he went on he came up in august back in 2011 and really ignited the city Brett Laurie jerseys were everywhere. You still see them because I think everyone bought them in that little time. So, JP, I wanted to ask you what you remember about the sort of Laurie mania when it started and what it's like with the team. Then that team was a bit spinning its wheels, kind of 500, to see, you know, an exciting young player, what kind of energy that creates because the Blue Jays might be looking at that with slightly different situation, but with Vladdy Jr. at some point. Well, honestly, I mean, if if you remember, he, he came – the, even if he didn't do well, I think his his energy in the field in itself uh, was something that was going to make you a fan of his. I think that uh, Manny, what what can I say? Well, he came up. Uh, he lived with me and Travis Snyder in spring training, so we had known him and got to know him pretty well, obviously in spring training. And we knew what kind of athlete he was, and we knew at some point it was going to happen. But man, he came up, and you're like, holy smokes, this guy is unbelievable, and how much power he had, how much he was like literally the combination of like thunder and lightning. Like this guy could jump out of the gym. He could fly down the line. He, he could hit a baseball into the second deck with ease. He had a really good throwing arm. He made ridiculous plays defensively. That's one thing that people don't realize. I think at third base, he was such a good athlete that he made so many ridiculous plays that uh, was super special. I mean, he hit that walk off that I think everybody, you know, was was going nuts about. Um, I just remember him coming in and kind of, you know, being being a guy who, like you said, he just brought energy to the fan base. He brought energy to the clubhouse. I mean, this dude used to drink Red Bulls and stand in the sauna like pregame. That was his warm-up. Like, oh, I'm just going to stand in the sauna and get warm and then go outside. That was – like, that's the kind of crazy this guy was. Um but he put on a show, man. I think I, I want to say he hit like nine home runs or something like that in like a, in a month and a half or whatever it was. And he just didn't stop. And you're right. It was Laurie Mania. And I think here's one thing I do think is that because he was the Canadian kid, they made it so they made him so big and they tried to market him so much that they that they almost made it to where he, they created a monster in the sense of when he struggled it was going to be a tough thing to deal with and i think uh you know later on that was kind of the the way things went down but like you said for his debut it was it was unbelievable this guy brought in serious serious excitement 
to the team and to the country. I mean, I remember watching Little League World Series with them going, Brett Laurie was my favorite player, and I want to be like Brett Laurie, which that's pretty big time. Um, but you know what? The fans have to be excited that sooner or later they're going to see the next, you know, one-of-one one players put on a, a Blue Jay uniform. And I don't think it's just Guerrero. I think uh, Cavio Bichette's, uh, right behind and or Cavio, uh, excuse me. Um, it's it's Bo Bichette and Cavio Biggio. Those are going to be two guys that are coming up that are going to be also stars. So I think they have a lot to be excited about. Um, and again, when Guerrero comes up, I think that you'll see the crowd very very full, and I think that you'll see you know at least at the beginning everybody coming out to try to see if he's the real deal or not. Before we get too far into Guerrero, I want to ask a question uh, about Brett Laurie, which is how real was the Red Bull thing? Was this a runaway train or was this like the guy absolutely crushed Red Bulls all the time? Because I feel like it's become almost like a, a myth at this point, almost a legend that's getting out of proportion. No, no, no. There's no myth, dude. This is 100% like give you wings every single day. Like this dude was shotgunning Red Bulls. We would be on a bus. It'd be a day. I never, I never forget. There was like a day game in New York, and he came into the to the bus, and he had his his headphones were on so loud. You know those headphones when people walk by you that you're like, holy smokes, dude! Like you have to be going deaf. Like that's how his headphones were, and he didn't have just a regular can of Red Bull. He had like the 24 ounce, the tall boy can of Red Bull, and he went down the aisle going, "Let's go, let's go, <laughs> let's go, boys!" And it was like. Hey, I asked him, like, hey, Brett, do you have any breakfast? He's like, nope. So that literally, there was nothing in this guy's system at that point other than a 24-ounce can of Red Bull. I think he even got, like, a Red Bull deal. But the Red Bull was not a facade. It was 100% Brett Laurie. And, I mean, it got he, – he literally, I think it spread around the clubhouse because then we started shotgunning Red Bulls before games. It actually became – a f pretty fun pregame ritual. I was going to say, you said he got that Red Bull deal. At a certain point, you got to capitalize on that. At some, like at some point, you got to get some kind of money if you're promoting a product all the time like that accidentally. Yeah, I just, I mean, it was just really, it was really him. I mean, that wasn't, there's no myth behind the Red Bull. This kid was, he had blood and Red Bull and it mixed in his veins. All right, we're going to go outside the nest today because I read something that I thought was really interesting that goes counter to some of the narratives we're hearing now, which is about the shift. So Robert Manfred had talked about the shift and suggested maybe banning the shift, and that created a big debate. And today, ESPN Sam Miller, who's absolutely fantastic, he wrote a piece about how the shift is actually creating runs. It's going against what people thought. It's based on a number of research pieces by Russell Carlton and whatnot. But basically the idea is, yes, the shift creates fewer hits, but... When pitchers are pitching in front of the shift, they actually don't throw as many strikes because they're worried about guys going out of their way, and it actually creates more walks. So we want offense to go down with the shift, but it's not working the way everyone thought. So I wanted to get a sense of what you thought about the way the shift is going and what you saw from it during your playing days because you were before it totally exploded, but it was still, it was still seriously coming when you were playing. Especially with Texas yeah, well, and actually, Tampa. Well, it, it, it was, it, it was full-blown at the end of my career, for sure. Um, honestly, I think that the shift is bad. Uh, I saw firsthand guys 
uh, Prince Fielder, 2014. I mean, this guy was hitting, I think, like a buck something. And I couldn't tell you the amount of missiles that he hit in between first and second right at the right at the guy hanging out in short right field and how many base hits those would have been. I remember being in camp with the Orioles and talking that Chris Davis had the highest average if it wasn't for the shift. I mean, it definitely uh, – Carlos Pena. I mean, Carlos Pena told me literally he said the shift ruined my career. And so, uh, I mean, yeah, I think, I think that there's something to be said about the shift. Uh, but I don't know. How do, you, how do you just say you can't stop it? I think if there's anything that you can do is you say, hey, you have to have, like, just like you have to have a certain amount of players in fair territory, maybe you have to have two infielders to the right of second base and two infielders to the left of second base, and the furthest they can go is back up the middle. Um, but I mean, I think it's even crazy now with the Joey Gallo shift. You got four outfielders. I mean, I, I don't think. I mean, I know whatever he could. You could say that it's created runs. It's definitely hurt a lot of guys' careers and their numbers. Uh, and I know people say like, "Oh, well, then you're a big leaguer. Just make the adjustment." Well, if it was that easy, everybody would make the adjustment. It's not that easy to just redirect the baseball the way you want it to go. And if anyone thinks it is grab a bat and hit off a major league pitcher because you're going to fail, uh, embarrassingly. But, I mean, I, I, I just think, unfortunately, there's a lot of numbers that are taken away from guys because of it. But, again, I don't know. How do you start? I mean, how do you say that? Do, do you create a rule, like you're saying, that says, hey, you can't do this? I eventually think they might have to do something like that, which will allow the game to be back to the way it used to be. Um but I don't know. What do you think about it? It's interesting because is the shift good for the game? You could make an argument no. Uh, like you said, there are certain hitters that it really has nullified. But also those stats go to, you know, if that hitter doesn't do as well, a pitcher does better. I'm not so worried about certain, I mean, I know certain guys it sucks, but I'm not so worried about that in the grander scheme of things. I do think, you know, it's leading to fewer hits. Now it turns out it's leading to more walks. So it's kind of slowing down the game in a sense. But at the same time, I'm kind of against the idea of legislating in and out strategy. Like this is a legitimate strategy someone came up with to try and win the game. And I think we like it when managers are creative and they try and find different ways to win the game. And so if you're going to put four guys in the outfield, to me, I think we should let people experiment like that. The results might not always be what we want them to be, but I think that we should encourage that kind of creativity in the game. Well, think about what about so then what are your thoughts on the in the you're a basketball guy, there's there's a legal defense. I mean, there's an illegal defense rule in the NBA. And I think that that's something too that can be brought to the forefront is do we see an illegal defense in baseball because I think everybody's going to stretch the rules until the rules are changed just like the first to third where you can't deceive a base runner well they changed the first to third rule where a pitcher can fake the third base and throw the first because it was deceiving the third base runner so they got rid of it and that was something that had been there for a while so because of oh somebody going hey well if i fake the third base because it's occupied i can get the guy out at first well they had to change the rule because of that so i mean again the nba has it so why wouldn't another, you know, sport be able to adopt it? It's a, no, it's a fair point. I mean, you'll, you see in football, too, there's a lot of defensive rules that have changed and have 
it's going the other way. It's loosened and opened it up for offense. But no, there's a, it's valid that people can tinker with these rules. For me, I just think that I like the idea that there are different defenses you can deploy, kind of like there are different defenses you can deploy in football. You can do 3-4, you can do 4-3, you can do nickel. I, I think it's kind of a cool idea. Like we said, the results aren't always what we want them to be, but I do think you're, you make a good point. It's not so easy to adjust. I think people, the average fan thinks it's a lot easier to adjust than it really is. It really is not easy to change your swing and change your approach that way. But I do think that if the shift sticks around, we're going to see more hitters who spray the ball come up. We're going to see it will counter itself. Maybe it won't be this generation of hitters. Maybe it'll be the next generation of hitters. We'll see guys like, you know, like he's a bad example because he's not doing that well right now. But Devin Travis is a guy who sprays line drives everywhere. And maybe hitters like that, in theory, would do better in the game, uh, you know, a few years from now if the shifts continue to be this dominant. But maybe... Maybe they won't be if there's this effect of walks that we're now seeing. Yeah, I don't know. They're gonna have to. Co- they're gonna have to go and, and do something about it. But I do know. Again, my thoughts is, is it is it good in the sense of yeah, defensively it helps out. Um, but I don't know. I think they're gonna eventually have to have to view it possibly as an illegal defense at some point. I just think, you know, it's just it's just football's a bad example because I think baseball. You're, it's literally you're hitting a baseball to, to nine guys with nobody in front, right? So it's not like in football you have another guy has to block another guy. To, like you're going – you're hitting against eight dudes in front of you, nine, excuse me, nine guys in front of you because uh, I don't – sometimes I don't count the pitchers because they're not that athletic. But um, that you're just going one against all them. So that's not how football works. I mean, it's really not one against everybody. Everybody kind of lines up and has different assignments. So that's the tough part about hitting, and that's why in football, if you complete 30% of your passes, you're going to have a pink slip. And in baseball, if you hit 30% of the balls with success rate, you're a Hall of Famer. So I think that's, that's one thing for me where there's a difference. All right, we're going to end this the way we always end it. It's JP Career Trivia. You're going to like this one. This is pretty much as positive as it goes. So, you know, we didn't give you your moment for the debut, but this is a really positive one. Looking back to the old game logs, I found one game where you threw out three runners. Only did it one time. It's going to be four points if you can name the team against, and then it's going to be hard, or the three runners. So there's a possible four points for this question. Your best career day throwing out runners. Right now you're sitting at 20 for 35. It's in passing territory, but it's not great. You've got a chance to get some serious work done there today. So what do you remember? Well, I'm going to negotiate with you real quick. If you tell me the team, I won't. you can minus that point. But then I'll think about the runners because honestly, I will tell you that I have zero chance at that entire question until you give me a team. Because I don't even—I have no idea who I threw three runners out against. No rec. Okay, fine. I'll—I'll I'll make that deal with you. So this is, this is a question that is now worth three points. The team was the Tampa Bay Rays back in the day when they were a big running team. Oh crap! Let's say. Let's say uh, BJ Upton. Uh, God, 
gosh, I don't even know. John Jaso. I'm just throwing. John Jaso. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I am Elliot Johnson. Wow, I'm shocked that you got Elliot Johnson right. Uh, you got you did get you got BJ Upton and Elliot Johnson, so that's a two out yes. of three. Yeah, two. That is a <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> Elliot Johnson, come on. Like not Desmond Jennings, not Carl. Cro- I mean Crawford's gone. No, no, because I knew I knew that he used to always try to run, and I threw him out a few times. <laughs> Elliot Johnson, and also like classic name that I haven't heard of in forever. Yeah, well, I just needed the name because if you would if you would have given me the, you, since you gave me the team name, I could take a few good guesses. But honestly, I mean before that deal, I would have told you I have zero chance. Like I would have just I would have waved the white flag. I'm surprised. I would have thought that, you know, catchers always had, take such pride in their defense that kind of a banner defensive day like that might be the sort of thing that you would keep in your memory. I mean, is it a banner defensive day because you throw out three guys? I mean, I, mean, sometimes, I wasn't going to mention they, honestly, they stole those are not, It's well, not like they're but. like crazy plays, right? It's like a strike them out and the guy's stealing. So you throw them out by 15 feet because he was just trying to run to keep out of the double play or a hit and run that went bad. So... Honestly, the the be- one of the best throwouts that I remember is uh, I want to say Kansas City Royals, and I uh, threw out the runner to end the game. So I thought that was pretty cool. Who was that? Casey Jansen was pitching. I think it might have been Chris Getz that tried to run. Oh, so it wasn't like Terrence Gore or something like that. Jared Gerard Dyson. No, I was still in the minor. Or I was still I was done when he was got to the big leagues. Terrence Gore is insane. All right, well you surprised me there because I thought that you know especially as a guy who is sometimes advocated for your defense was had, had been maligned in the press that you would uh that you would have a good memory of your big day and as as i said there were two successful steals that day but you know 3 for 5 is pretty damn good i don't know you know i'll i'll give you huge credit for mentioning Ellie Johnson though cuz that's that's an out of this world call yeah well sometimes i'll uh Sneak up on you, just like uh, the old career. I might swing at two 57-foot sliders, and then all of a sudden you throw me one in the plate, and I'll hit it into the second deck, you know? I got to keep people on their toes. All right, that's it for episode 13 of Digging In with J.P. and Siva. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you listen on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. We're out there. We're everywhere. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed it. 